So our scripture lesson this morning comes from the book of Genesis, chapter 25, verses 19 through 34. So we invite you to hear these words of God. These are the descendants of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham became the father of Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he married Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean, and the sister of Laban, the Aramean, from Padamaram. Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife, since she was unable to have children. The Lord was moved by his prayer, and his wife Rebekah became pregnant. But the boys pushed against each other inside of her, and she said, If this is what it's like, why did it happen to me? So she went to ask the Lord, and the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb. Two different peoples will emerge from your body. One people will be stronger than the other, and the older will serve the younger. When she reached the end of her pregnancy, she discovered that she had twins. The first came out red all over, clothed with hair, and she named him Esau. Immediately afterward, her, his brother came out, gripping Esau's heel, and she named him Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when they were born. When the young men grew up, Esau became an outdoorsman who knew how to hunt, and Jacob became a quiet man who stayed at home. Isaac loved Esau because he enjoyed eating game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Once, when Jacob was boiling stew, Esau came in from the field hungry and said to Jacob, I'm starving. Let me devour some of this red stuff. That's why his name is Edom. Jacob said, sell me your birthright today. Esau said, since I'm gonna die anyway, what good is my birthright to me? And Jacob said, give me your word today. And he did. He sold his birthright to Jacob. So Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew. He ate, drank, got up, and left, showing just how little he thought of his birthright. This is the word of God for you, the people of God. Thanks, Thanks be, be to, to God. God. So I'm Reverend Jen Logston Kellogg, and Reverend Sarah P. Montgomery and I preach every week in the 13th Street Worship Service, which is our modern contemporary worship service. Well, when we went to closing the building and doing everything online, Sarah and I had been trading back and forth, preaching in 13th Street, and we decided to try having a conversation-style sermon for Easter. Mm -hmm. And it went so well that we have preached since Easter in a dialogue. So today you get a little taste of what our 13th Street community is hearing from us in 13th Street. We also have something else in common. We both have twins. So when the scripture came up for the, the birth of, of Jacob and Esau and the pregnancy with twins uh, that Rebecca suffered from. Uh -huh. <laughs> we realized that, hey, we, we can preach on this. We've got something in common with that. That's right. And we put a little note out to our 13th Street community and asked folks to tell their, their stories of pregnancy and birth. And we had several people who had stories of either being a twin, um, some who had found out just a couple of weeks before their twins were born, that they were having twins, lots of uh, twin stories in our midst. Well, I, my twins are 18 years old, 
Sarah's are almost a year. <laughs> so this is a more distant memory for me than it is for you. <laughs> but when I was pregnant, my twins were um, A and B, twins A and B, a boy and a girl, which was a little answered prayer as far as I was concerned. And we didn't know when we were first pregnant that they were a boy and a girl, but they were labeled on the ultrasound baby A and baby B. So we started jokingly calling them Agnes and Brutus. <laughs> and we referred to them that way, talked to them, uh, called them Agnes and Brutus the whole time that I was pregnant. And when uh, it, was time, it was not time for them to be born, and Agnes, who is twin A, uh, my daughter, decided that it was time about eight weeks too early. Mm -hmm. And that is pretty much the way she faces the world. She is ready to go, ready to charge in to do whatever is next. My son is a little more laid back. I think he would have been content to be eight weeks late, to be perfectly honest. And that has kind of been the dynamic between the two of them for the most part through their childhood. Now we did have what my husband and I call the bickering years. So there were several years there. Sorry, you may I'm have not this to look forward, forward to. This. to yeah. <laughs> they fought all the time and they would find anything to fight about. And so I saw that spirit of competition between them in those few years that we called the bickering years. We, in our family, and I think probably in every family that is watching this broadcast, would say that all of our children are equal and that we do everything we can to give them equal opportunity to succeed mm -hmm. in life. I'm sure that even though you have three girls, if you, you would offer whatever resources any of those girls need in order to Absolutely. go to school or mm -hmm. you know whatever it is that they need. Uh, my daughter and my son have equal opportunity for college, for if they want to become clergy or whatever they want to do in their careers. That's not the way it was back then. Mm -hmm. So in this story that we're looking at in Genesis, there was an understanding in the society at that time that the oldest son, now the daughters didn't inherit anything, the oldest son was the one who would inherit the vast majority of the property and the wealth of the family. And with the inheritance of the property would be the responsibility to carry on the family name and to continue to um, be fruitful mm -hmm. in the name of the family. So tell us about your story. Yeah, I mean, you talk about your twins and how they are a little bit more like the order of the world, how they came out. And the first is a bit more leadership piece. Mm -hmm. Well, mine are a little bit more like Jacob and Esau. So we had my, my girls, so we also had A and B. We did not know their sex before they were born. So we called them Bader and Ginsburg since we already had a Ruth. <laughs> so that way we could have Ruth Bader Ginsburg in our home and it was super fun. But we had uh, our youngest, or our, I guess the one who was closest to the birth canal was Olive. And uh, my water broke and we always joke that Millie who was on the top the second born twin probably pushed Olive to kind of <laughs> get everything started and to get out of the womb because um, Millie is a bit more uh, a, a firecracker you know she has a bit more life and spontaneity and spunk within her she lets her voice be known and has had that voice be known since her birth 
And so I kind of really relate to Rebecca, you know, within this text of, of having twins that where the order of their births perhaps don't necessarily align with what was expected and what is expected within the order of the world. You know, and, and Rebecca has this way of being able to reflect on that through this oracle that she received through prayer right? and through this, these words. And so we're going to um, look at that a little bit more today. So we wanted to read that to you again about how two nations are in your womb and two different people will emerge and one people will be stronger than the other and the older will serve the younger. And so this oracle really speaks of this inversion. Right. Turning it all upside down. Right. And so this way of, and affirms in a lot of ways, how um, what happens within the world is not necessarily the way that the world has to be. So Mm -hmm. that the structure, so what God was doing within this oracle in so many ways was shifting society on its head as well. Right. Which you see not just in this oracle and not just in this family story, but all throughout scripture, um, there are stories of the younger child being the one that ends mm-hmm. up inheriting. Um, and, of course, Jesus is always talking about mm-hmm. turning things on its head. But the subverting of the birth order is not the only thing here. Now, there are other stories. I love the one further on in Genesis where Tamar is having twins. And oh, yes. one baby gets an arm out and the midwife ties a red cord around it. Because they want to make sure that one gets the marking right, of the firstborn. Because it's so important to know which one is born first. And then it turns out that the other baby is born first. And uh-huh. so it completely shifts. That's kind of a big chance it didn't wasn't anything that anyone could control it was just luck Mm -hmm. on the the firstborn's part that they were actually born first so that's something that i think we see all the time Mm -hmm. we sometimes credit ourselves for the privileges that we have and think that we have earned our place but in fact um, i was just lucky to have been born in 1972 uh, in the United States of America to a family that was stable and loving and ready for me, you know, mm-hmm. ready mm-hmm. to receive me and to, to raise me. And so, so many of the things that I would like to be able to take credit for that I earned it or that my family earned it, it's just chance. Yeah, and you, and you really see this within this, that, that God is is declaring that this idea of chance and this idea of, of luck is really just a, a way to be able to turn everything upside down so that we are more likely to think about where is God right. in the midst of this. So instead of just thinking about our own things that we've earned or that we've done or that, you know, I have, I have gained this, is instead thinking about, well, how has God been a part of this? How has God perhaps given me this gift to be able to use so that I can do these different things within the world? Well, don't you think that's one of the questions that comes up in this text? Yeah, absolutely. Because in this text, you know, Isaac prays. Mm -hmm. uh, They're having trouble getting pregnant and Isaac prays and then the prayer is answered, or at least that's how the writer interprets that Mm -hmm. because Isaac prayed to God, God was faithful and then made Rebecca be able to conceive. Well, maybe, or maybe 
you know, her fertility just kicked in for some reason right then. That's right. Right? And so they're attributing to, to God what they saw as an answered prayer. That's right. But then Rebecca prays and she says, this is terrible. Which we totally get. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, she says, I am suffering so badly. Why does it have to be this way? Mm-hmm. And we don't know the nature of her suffering. Mm-hmm. We don't know if it's that she was emotionally distraught. I mean, pregnancy hormones, right? Yeah, they're real. Or if it was physical, um, not comfortable, by the way. Also very real. Right. And, in, and when she prays to God about it, I don't think that this oracle, personally, I don't think that this oracle is God um, kind of projecting this is, this is what God is going to make happen. God is stating a truth. Right. right? It's not this puppeteer game. So right. it's not this, this piece of, you know, this is what is predestined to happen from now on, and I'm going to be a puppeteer and puppet you throughout the rest of life. Right. I think it's, it's God's way of preparing Rebecca for yes. what might be coming next. That's right. Right? That's right. Well, and that within that preparation, that each one of these characters still have then the freedom to act Right. within that. They still have the ability to choose, you know, the ways that they're going to live within what it is that God has ascribed to them, you know, these mm-hmm. blessings that have come to them. Right. And so that they still get that chance to choose mm-hmm. how that's going to be played out. Well, and we see as the story goes on uh, about when Esau and Jacob, you know, we read that, that when they're grown, Esau sells his birthright to Jacob. But then later on, on Isaac's deathbed, then Rebekah acts to have Jacob be the one to go in and get the blessing of mm-hmm. the eldest son mm-hmm. and trick his father mm-hmm. into giving him that blessing instead of Esau. Now, of course, Esau had given up that right, but there were a lot of um, actors in that scene who were making their own decisions about what to do. You know, Mm -hmm. Rebecca was choosing to help Jacob get the blessing and to go so far as to put the the goat skin on Mm -hmm. his arms. And Esau, you know, made the decision in that heat of the moment um, to give up his birthright for a meal. Mm -hmm. And Isaac, don't you think he had to be kind of willfully ignorant? Sure. Right? Mm Mm-hmm. Well, and then we have, so then within those choices, though, and and within this whole idea of privilege being chance and kind of the flipping of society, I think one of the other pieces that's so important that you and I talked about earlier in the week about this is how God's love is not something that's going to run out. Right. You know, and so often when we think about this narrative, or even when we think back to Isaac and Ishmael, you know, we think that God's love is limited. And that that space, we come to these texts with a theology of scarcity. Which is what they were accustomed to, right? Yep. The oldest son was going to get everything. And yeah, there was less for the, for the younger. And so I loved what you said to me <laughs> earlier this week about this. You said, God's love is not a pie. And I loved that because I love to eat. And so this whole idea about God's love not being a pie because it's, it's, you know, it's not going to run out all of a sudden and then I'm going to be left with an empty you know, container right. where I really want pie. Like it's, <laughs> it's going to be multiplying and it's going to be growing and, and being more and more within the world. And I don't have to come and get you know, my half of the pie and hide it somewhere so that you can't have it, right? That's right. It's the, right. the endlessly appearing new mm-hmm. plate of pie, like in Harry Potter's banquet, right? Which is beautiful. Yeah. And so <laughs> we think then about 
Jesus and about, you know, because if Jesus is for us the, the image of who God is and is the way that we're able to understand God within the world, then how is Jesus's love as well a part of shaping and of, and of encouraging us to go out and to do within the world this inversion as well, to be a part of subverting the orders of the world And there's this great verse and this great scripture from Luke chapter 4, which is also picked up from Isaiah 61, where Jesus talks about how the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. And it's to be able to preach good news to the poor, to be able to recover sight to the blind, to be able to set the captives free, to be able to welcome in the immigrants among us, that God's love is not a pie. Right. These birth order narratives do not show us that then because one receives this, the other gets nothing. Well, and the way this story wraps up is that Esau's family is eventually brought back into the covenant, right? In, back into the people. Um, it takes a while. There's a lot of drama in between. But ultimately, Esau is blessed mm-hmm. as, just as Jacob is. So this week, as we go into the world, we want to ask you, how will you be a part of reminding yourself that God's love is not something that's going to run out? And so how can you be a part of sharing that and of lifting up those and of being a part of subverting the orders of the world into being looking a bit more like the kingdom of God around and among us? So let's be a part of doing that good work within the world. Amen. Thanks be to God. Mm-hmm.